0: Welcome to another episode of The Little Breakfast, and it's great to have David Robertson with us this morning. Hi, David. How are you?
1: I'm well, thank you. Yes, uh, it's good to have breakfast at half past five in the evening.
0: (laughs) At five in the evening, yeah, we're we're at different sort of ends of the world, aren't we? Um, We are indeed. Yes. Well, I've just had my breakfast, and I guess you might have had afternoon tea, depending on whether you have that or
1: not. In, yeah, no, uh, I'm 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 heading for dinner. I'm an early riser, so I go to bed <laughs> you're, early.
0: You're heading for dinner and an early early, early night. Um, well, just in terms of um, what we do on the little breakfast, this is a little starter before the main course, as it were. is we just ask our guests, you know, just for a bit of a, a kind of introduction as to what what sort of in terms of a breakfast, what would be your average day's breakfast? As you you an early riser, as you say.
1: Depends when it is i when I get up, I always go straight and have a coffee, and then I do reading and prayer and everything else and then um, partly depending on the weather as well, during the week, I tend to have kind of yogurt and fruit, uh, maybe a couple of crisp bakes or something with a bit of cheese and more coffee and sometimes I treat myself, I have a guilty pleasure as regards breakfast, which i 'll tell you about if you ask at the <laughs> weekend. Uh, this is my farm background. Uh, Saturday and Sunday, it's fry-up days. I always like a good English or even better Ulster breakfast. An Ulster fry, yeah. Um, so what, would that
0: be your sort of dream breakfast, or would there be something even more dreamier than that?
1: <laughs> well, probably the Ulster fry is, but I actually I do enjoy, I have a guilty pleasure, I do enjoy McDonald's breakfast, especially okay. the um, bacon, egg, and cheese bagel and the hash browns. I, uh, it's the one thing about McDonald's I really like. So I, I have that occasionally.
0: Yeah, that's that's good. Actually, I, I've forgotten about that. It's, it's particularly good if you're on the road, isn't it? You know, yeah. you want something a bit more hearty on the road. Although I do find um, with McDonald's in general that you generally sort of eat it and then about twenty minutes later feel hungry again for some reason. Um, yeah. I yeah know well, I, I
1: think they probably manage that quite well.
0: a sort of um, sugar and the <laughs> other things, but um, we're not, uh, allegedly. Um, <clears throat> so, what would be your nightmare breakfast?
1: Oh, I don't know. Um, I, I pretty well like uh, most foods. I guess, I've been in the southern US, I guess grits would right. probably be my nightmare breakfast.
0: Yeah, do you want to explain what they are to those who are less informed?
1: It's kind of like porridge, but not. It's sort of tasteless. It's, I, I, I don't, I'm not really sure how to describe it. It's, <laughs> for me, it's pretty probably,
0: awful. It tastes like it sounds by the
1: sound of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's pretty well. Uh, that's a pretty good description of it.
0: Yeah. So um, you're in Australia right now. Do you want to just tell the listeners a bit about who you are and
1: what you're involved in, in terms of ministry? Sure. My name is David Robertson. I'm from Scotland. I was a minister in Scotland for 33 years. Uh, I started very young. Um, I am... I uh, came here, I uh, did you know, rural ministry for six years and then urban ministry for 27 years. I've uh, been doing a lot of evangelism and so on, and I came here a year ago to start up an evangelism project with an organization called City Bible Forum. Uh, we call it Third Space, and yeah, basically that's what I'm doing. That's who I am. I'm married to Annabelle, and I have three children and four grandchildren.
0: So you're obviously a long way from home. How's that transition
1: been? Uh, it's been good and it's been difficult. There are things that are very difficult. There are things that you miss from home, not least family. There are other things that the transition has been wonderful. I mean, the Lord's people are, are there wherever you are. There are some wonderful things about Australia, particularly Sydney. Um, I think transitioning the job has actually been harder than anything else. Right. But transitioning cultures, no, and trans- transitioning, I mean, I've got some family here, I've got family back in uh, Scotland, and I've got family in London. So yeah, this works I, out pretty well the same. And is part of that
0: transition, um, the difficulty partly coming out of quite rooted local ministry, or is it purely moving to the other side of the world or a bit of both?
1: No, the the difficulty for me in terms of transition of the job is um, that I was a pastor in a local church doing evangelism on that basis, and I'm now working for uh, an interdenominational organisation, and I found that transition very difficult. When you're a pastor in a local church, you have a very strong identity, um, and you have uh, a very clear ministry. And I had a wider ministry as well. And I came here in virtually unknown, which in some ways is a really good thing. Um, But also it's like you're starting all over again.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I can see how that that can be a challenge in differing ways when when you've been, uh, as you say, used to local ministry and then actually it's a sort of um, flurry into other areas as an extra to that. So I can see that challenge. Yeah. So what I want us to talk about a bit as we continue this conversation, I mean, there's lots of things going on at the moment, as we know, and there's lots of shooting from the hip in response to various types of things that are happening in this crisis, but uh, I wanted to explore a bit about culture and our view of meaning in the West, uh, particularly in terms of to start with, at least in this conversation, self-sufficiency. So one of the things that I think has been interesting, uh, certainly from a UK perspective and, and, a, and a perspective in Scotland, is, is that as we're actually still in lockdown here in Scotland, um, there is definitely a recognition that in a culture where we are encouraged to be independent, have our own freedom, do our own thing, realise self-actualisation and what have you, Um, that we are in a position where those freedoms have been restricted. And I I was just really interested to, to understand from your own perspective what you think in terms of how much of that understanding of meaning in terms of the individual is being challenged right now, or where do you see that in terms of the last sort of 10 years? Has that developed or not developed?
1: Yeah, well, in terms of the last 10 years, I think some of the biggest things in Western culture have been Uh, a desire for the community but an excessive individualism and self-obsessiveness and also the the big thing the big development for me has been the rise of identity politics and your self-made identity and you can change your identity on virtually anything you can identify as whatever you want and I think rather than leading to clarity and help that, that that has led to a great deal of confusion and Uh, I just, I don't know, uh, just enormous difficulties. Now, I think in terms of the the current situation, what the current situation has done, and I'm talking here, of course, about the COVID crisis, is that has shaken up um, a lot of these things. So you'll have noticed during it that the identitarian politics you know, the trans stuff and everything else has been very fairly quiet. You can tell things are inverted commas improving because all that's beginning to come back. Mm, um, yeah. But I, I do think that has shaken that. I also think it's shaken the identity that many of us have, whereby although we know that we are going to die, we live as though we are immortal. And I think being constantly bombarded with figures of death and threats of death and you better behave yourself or you're going to die type the, the catastrophic um, type of reporting and news that many people have been inflicted uh, upon them, that has caused some people at least to think, wow, uh, life is fragile, I'm fragile, and I don't know who I am, I don't know where I'm going. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's interesting.
0: Just pull back a bit on that point that you mentioned about the contrast i guess i mean the two can coexist against the desire for individuality and and community but you mentioned about that desire for both and i wonder what what's going on there then why why do people sort of want to firmly be this individual person but actually have this like, um desire for a community why not just go all out well it's just me and i don't care about anyone else
1: well, I think the two things, I think people have enough sense and sus to realize that without community, you don't have a huge amount. So I think what, what's happening is you've got two things. I think you've got the original temptation in the Garden of Eden, you shall be like gods, that we are in control of ourselves. You know, uh, human autonomy is considered to be the ultimate. Yeah. But at the same time, I think you've got human selfishness, Which is, I need other people. You know, um, just to put it at a crude level. You know, I need other people to make my food. I need other people to, you know, in terms of um, sexual desires. I need other people to socialise with, um, and and so on. So I think you've got all of that. But people want the benefits of of community without the costs.
0: Yeah, no, that's really helpful, and it takes me back to a friend of mine. He. I'm sure you're aware of um Ellis Potter, who's been involved yeah. with LeBrie for years, and, and he would often uh in 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 the way that Ellis does go you know go up to somebody and say, you know, what is meaning? <laughs> and somebody yeah. would sort of stand there and sort of like sweat for a while. And his definition of meaning um ultimately is relationship. And I think what you're describing um fits in with that, that actually in a positive way us being made in God's image, um, is that we're not made just to be alone, that we are made for relationship and we can't understand ourselves or the world that we exist in reality without actually it relating outside of ourselves. So I think, um, I think I suppose there is that innate desire for that, that people maybe turn yes in a sinful way, but there is that desire, isn't there, to, to connect with that which is outside of ourselves. Absolutely.
1: And I think, um, but we also wanted to be part of ourselves. So if you're in school, you want to be part of the gang, you know, you want to identify with something, with some group. I remember in Dundee, outside one of the, uh, main churches and the shopping center, there was about 200 moshers, um, you know, and punks juice to hang around. And a huge part of that, that people were, they were finding identity, seeking identity in a football crowd, you get identity. Actually, when people talk about the LGBT community, it's a question of identity, seeking identity. Um, and often in churches, you get the same thing that people will, will have an identity that's based upon the church rather than upon Christ. Yeah. And people, uh, sadly, nowadays as well, a lot of people are identifying on social media by their political views. Mm. And that is creating a great deal of hostility and division.
0: Yeah, and I think, uh, and yeah, you could argue what you're saying there is evidenced in sort of what we call tribalism, isn't it, in terms of how we identify with different sort of tribes. But so from a, from a sort of biblical theological point of view, how do we, is it possible to... Yes, we need to find our identity in Christ, but then we then, I mean, it should be possible that we have union with Christ, but how do we actually communicate that in a way that isn't so tribal?
1: Yeah, I I think what happens is you'll get a lot of people who pay lip service to the idea of identity in Christ. And it becomes a little bit like Paul uh, when he's talking to the Corinthians and he's saying, look, some of you say I am of Cephas and some of you say I am of Paul and some of you say I am of Christ. And you think, well, I'm of Christ. That's got to be a good thing. But actually, it'd been turned into a kind of tribalism. And I think your identity in Christ doesn't negate your other identities. So I am a Christian. And I'm in Christ, but I'm also a man. I'm also a husband. I'm also a Scot. I live in Australia. You know, there are a whole bunch of different things that become part of my identity. I think what is significant biblically for us is our reason for, for living. So Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And I think some of us even though we are Christians, we've got to a phase that we live for our children. We live for our job. We live for our Facebook profile. You know, uh, there are certain things that we live for, but it's not for Christ. And I think Christ has to be at the center. Now, I think that then permeates through everything else so that actually, in, in one sense, these things become more valuable. So I used to use this illustration with um, couples when I, we had a lot of students in Dundee and Um, you know, uh, I I did a lot of weddings, far more weddings and funerals. (laughs) And, uh, uh, you know, a couple would come and we'd be talking beforehand about marriage and what it was. And, you know, I would often say sometimes to non-Christians as well, I would say this, um, you need to love God. You need to love Jesus. You need to love God more than you love your spouse. And I remember one man saying to me, but I've only got so much love and it's like a glass. And, you know, um, that means I'm going to love my wife less. And I said, no, 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 no. You you haven't grasped this. <laughs> the point about it is that the when you love Christ first, your glass becomes so much bigger. So in reality, you love your wife more, not less, because you love Christ the most. And I would say that's at my best, that's been my greatest experience. I've loved music more. I've loved food more. I've loved life more. I've loved, you know, other people more because of love for Christ. Yeah. When I get it wrong, uh, at my worst, it's it's all messed up.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful. I, I think that's a great analogy in terms of, of of marriage. And you're right; it's almost as if. Uh, and I think what you're describing there is is potentially the the understanding of our identity in Christ being compartmentalized, isn't that right? You know, that somehow we can compartmentalize our life and say, well, this bit's for Jesus and that bit's for football and that bit's for work. You know, there's that that temptation to compartmentalize our faith.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think um, we have Jesus as an optional extra in so many things. Yeah. You know. And I, I think we need to be very, very careful about all of that. Just following on from that and, and related to that, um,
0: <clears throat> I've been thinking through some of the challenges of a crisis in which many sort of uh, material things, not, not, not lots, but some material things that we're used to, even at the beginning of this crisis, going to the shop buying whatever you want or buying how many things that you want and how what we saw was um, a a desire to sort of go out and buy as much as what we can stockpiling kind of gather things in but it's been a challenge maybe to consumerism and maybe what we could call in good old-fashioned terms gluttony Uh, I was reading um, through Tim Keller's The Way of Wisdom his, his book on the Proverbs and and the wisdom uh, books in, in in the old testament and in one of the daily readings there was a, an interesting quote that said gluttony offers a whirl of dancing dining sports and dashing very fast from place to place to gape at beauty spots well obviously that's a little bit ironic uh, given the yeah. news in the past week Gluttony may lead to literal addictions to food, drink or drugs, to gulping them down. But even if it does not, the spirit of gluttony is always to take the easy way out. So what I want us to unpack a wee bit is just this idea of, which I think is a hallmark of the last 10, 20 years, maybe longer, of, of consumerism and how almost consumerism is good, but what the Bible might call gluttony. Have you got any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I think um, it's it's very interesting that it's a sin that the Bible mentions a lot, but the church doesn't mention so much. So, I mean, and I've been thinking about this a lot. We started off talking about breakfast and, you know, um, a McDonald's meal and so on. Uh, and I'm not saying McDonald's is wrong, but I am saying that what many of us do is we fill up our appetites uh, and we indulge our appetites. And it's funny, I think in the church today, many people, not all sadly, would sort of say, well, indulging your sexual appetite out with biblical norms is wrong. But we turn a blind eye completely to other appetites, including um, uh, eating and so on. And I've been thinking about that a lot because I like reading. You you mentioned what I did and do in the morning. I I do like reading. I read the Bible, but I like reading the Puritans and the early church fathers. I always read a few pages of the early church fathers and I'm reading Chrysostom just now. And so many times he warns against gluttony and uh, warns against excessive use of wealth in pleasure. And I think that's a message that the modern church has largely forgotten.
0: Yeah. And why do you think it's forgotten it?
1: Because, because we like it too much, you know, because um, it, it seems, uh, it's, what is it? Um, the, the, the book, Respectable Sins. There are some sins that are respectable that no one's, you know, going to have a go at you at. and yet as as chrysostom points out and i was just reading this the other day that what gluttony does to us is it it destroys us we're in ill health it destroys us um it destroys our physical health overeating and so on and overindulgence but he argues it also destroys our spiritual health health and uh, i don't know if uh, if any of the listeners have ever fasted but sometimes what happens when you fast is there's a, a heightened mental awareness, and I would say sometimes a heightened spiritual awareness. Now, what I don't want to do is make that mechanical, but I do think there is a point in that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right in terms of um, of your assessment of that, in terms of the, the church, and I think that's really challenging, uh, I think, respectable sins, because there does seem a bit of a sort of uh, perspective that says, you know well if you work hard so you're a christian you work hard you know you've earned this stuff um as long as as you say you're not going around sleeping around or doing drugs or whatever it's perfectly fine to let's face it indulge yourself to some degree and i think that does deplete um our hunger for god i i would argue that in my own life the times where i've been challenged physically mentally um where i've faced challenges at the times when i'm probably most on my knees and 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 realize that this other stuff that's shiny and gold doesn't actually satisfy which is entirely biblical isn't it
1: yeah and i think it's it's but it's not just that because gluttony has a cost doesn't it so i demand that i have to be able to have strawberries any yeah. Well, that's a cost. There's a cost in terms of ecology. There's a cost in terms of transport. There's a cost in terms of workers. I demand that a shop be open all the time. Yeah. You know, well, there's a cost in that. Uh, I demand a 24-7 food supply chain. Uh, and again, I think there's a cost in that.
0: Interestingly, David, I don't know whether it's quite a demand or even an entitlement now,
1: is it? You know, that, that actually well, I'm entitled to have these things. Well, I think it's an entitlement. I think it's unthinking. And I think that that's why the church has fallen into it because we're not thinking. Um, I remember once we were sitting around our table and there was, we had some green beans <laughs> along with whatever we were having on one Sunday. And I remember one of my kids saying, dad, where do these beans come from? I was, it's just such an unusual question. So I went and looked at the packet and I said, Kenya. And then was, do you think it's right that they come all the way from Kenya? What about starving Africans and so on? So I didn't know the answer. So I went and phoned up Tear Fund, and uh, I was a member of their um, campaigning group. And I said, can you answer this question for me? And it was very interesting. They said, it's a really great question. They said, there are certain factors that are involved that you have to balance things out. So there is the cost of transporting these and everything. Uh, That's one factor. But I said, on the positive side, if it wasn't for people in Britain or in Europe buying these beans... 20,000 Kenyan bean farmers would be out of work, and wouldn't be able to provide for their families. Mm. And it wasn't as though we were taking food away from Kenyans. In fact, we were providing for them. Mm. So I think that's um, a significant thing. You know, we, it's, it's not as simple as, as we all like to think. But it's interesting here in Australia, we notice far more than in the UK, and maybe it's because Australia is such a massive, I would say, island continent. I mean, it's huge, but... Um, it means that um, fruit and stuff here is seasonal. So right now getting raspberries or blueberries is going to cost me a fortune because it's coming from overseas. Yeah, And I'm looking and I'm thinking, that's wrong. Actually, I should just go with the seasonal fruits. And I, I think God has built into nature, if you like, patterns. And I think in our greed and gluttony, we've ignored these patterns and we've created some of whatever you think about climate change, there's no doubt at all that humanity has, has impact upon the climate. And, and I think um, we, we need to think about these things a lot more.
0: Yeah, interestingly, um, further down in that devotion that I was reading from Keller, he says, the great mistake of gluttony is to seek happiness directly rather than as a byproduct of living responsibly. And that, that fits in with what you're saying, doesn't it, in terms of, you know, we need to be good stewards, don't we? Um, of yeah, absolutely. And, um, and you're right. You know, I think one positive thing that's been happening, um, certainly here in Edinburgh, is, is that we've started buying much more locally and actually buying meat more locally, which actually tastes far better than sort of mass-produced kind of stuff. And I think there is a sense in which uh, going more local... And going with the seasons definitely is a sort of healthier thing. But but, but you're right. I think, I think the idea behind this gluttony that we experience in terms of consumerism is that there is this desire to have things on tap and I can have it whenever I want. Um, I mean, I remember yeah. going to America probably 25 years ago and being absolutely shocked that there was a supermarket open at night and thinking, what on earth? Like Who would want to go to the supermarket at three or four in the morning well, that's just the norm here in the UK now. Yeah. And uh, we just yeah. expect, as you say, things to be on tap. Yeah. So
1: I think uh, tied in with that as well, I mean, there's a couple of things we're kind of, you know, I, I don't want to shoot all over the place and you'll keep me guided, but um, <laughs> I remember uh, a missionary from India who'd been there for many, many years coming back and actually feeling physically sick, hmm. standing in the supermarket at at, at the you know, the opulence. And I mean, I I don't know what the figure is now, but a number of years ago, the figure was that up to a third of food bought in shops in the UK was actually wasted. Um, Yeah, it's terrible. And I think that that, that's a significant factor. The other thing in this that I think is interesting that the COVID uh, crisis is teaching us is you cannot rely on supply chains from China. If your medicines and your PPE equipment can only be provided if it's coming from China, then there's something wrong. And certainly what's happening in Australia now, there's a big political push to say we need to make stuff here. Hmm. And maybe we're going to go back to making more stuff locally, which would, for my mind, not be a bad thing.
0: Well, yeah, and it comes back to the idea of community, doesn't it? What, okay, yeah. we've got a global community, but is it is it not right to actually sort of engage holistically with your local community in, in working and, and manufacturing and all kinds of things? Um, yeah,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. And and the other thing, of course, I mean, there are big advantages in globalization. And we need to recognize that some aspects of globalization have resulted in millions of people being brought out of poverty. And I think that is wonderful. But there are disadvantages as well. And we need to try and balance the things. So I, I feel that, um, you know, people often talk about the free movement of labor, which is tied in with the free movement of capital. And it sounds great, except if you're in a, I remember one situation, a factory in in Scotland, where the workers were just all fired. Mm-hmm. Uh, the The plant was closed down. I mean, they weren't fired, but the plant was closed down, and it was deemed to be uneconomic, and their jobs were all moved to the Philippines. Now, they weren't going to go to the Philippines, of course, but it was just it was cheaper to make that their particular product in the Philippines for a dollar a day with women staying in dormitories than it was to pay proper wages in the UK. And you start thinking, this is an aspect of globalization that's not good. I think there are other aspects that are good.
0: Yeah, that's very helpful. Just thinking a bit about, I'm just going to quote you on one of your recent blogs, wee bit of research. Yeah. (laughs) You said... um, What the United Kingdom needs is not a return to Christendom or Christian values or Western civilization, but a return to the one who all that is built on. You can't have a Christian civilization without Christ. Some of what we have been saying, I think, relates to this idea of how do we operate? How do we move, work, manufacture? Um, Do you want to just expand a bit on that?
1: Yeah, I think there's a danger in particularly for Christians, for those of us, and by Christian I'm using the biblical definition of someone who is uh, a reborn or born again believer in Jesus Christ, who's repented of their sins and trust in him. Uh, And there's a danger of those who are Christians recognizing the good that Christianity has brought to society. So for example, I regret the loss of Christendom. I don't think it's a good thing that Christendom has gone Um, I think it brought many great advantages to Europe. But uh, there is a danger that we look and we say, oh, if only we could get people back to this, not meaning the gospel, but Christian values. But you cannot have the fruit without the root. And there's an enormous danger that people will campaign for particular Christian values, not realizing that you cannot expect non-Christians to have them. Mm.
0: Can you give some examples of that?
1: Sure. Um, well, quite a lot. Um, I would say, for example, the, the, the big arguments that there have been about marriage. Now, I think marriage is for everyone in the sense that marriage is between a man and a woman, and God has given us instructions how marriage works. Um, and we would say that, uh, the Christian teaching is that sex is sacred and should be within marriage, and marriage is between a man and a woman. And that, by in many people in our culture, is regarded as utterly ridiculous. I think to argue simply that if only we got back to that view of marriage, our society would be okay, would be ludicrous. But I think that what we can argue is that we need people to understand, yes, this is what God says, but you're not going to obey what God says until you come to believe in God, until you come to have a a living and saving faith in him. So I think, I don't think the Apostle Paul spread the gospel in pagan Rome or Greece by marching down the streets with banners about marriage or by lecturing people about marriage. I think he expected the Christians to live a particular way. And I think gradually as Christianity more and more, as Richard Dawkins would say, infected the society, the society changed. Mm. I think what we are now trying to do is reverse that process, that we are saying if only the society would impose Christian values, then things would be okay. And I'm saying, we've lo- that's gone. We've lost that game, it's gone. um i i will argue i will i get politically involved i do stuff but i realize it's a complete waste of time and and when i look at the the uk and one of the advantages of being in australia and and i've had several messages even today from people saying shut up you're in australia what do you know well (laughs) they've forgotten that globalization means that i'm getting exactly the same news um (laughs) And here, as I was getting in Dundee, I had somebody from a remote island saying, how do you know what people in Britain think? And I said, I don't. Nobody knows. But I'm getting the same news as you are. And I have lots of friends and, you know, social media and all that kind of stuff. But I think one of the things that I've been able from a distance to some degree to see is to see that, I mean, I've said this for a long time when I was there, but being away has confirmed it even more. And I'm not a particularly pessimistic person, but the UK is in a dreadful mess. Uh, in lots of ways. Uh, it's a very, very dark place, uh, I think, spiritually. And I think that's reflected in lots of ways, not least um, just now, the anger, the hostility, the tribalism. It's the same in, the, in America, by the way, as well. I, th- I think hmm. it's quite depressing to watch. I've spoken to a
0: couple... Well, firstly, that, that's really helpful uh, explanation of what, what I asked you in, in the first instance. And I think that it's... I think it's really it's really interesting perspective that you've got on that because I think ultimately it comes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, which isn't just associating yourself with a tribe or just an ideology for the sake of it, but actually it's about being rooted and having your union in Christ, isn't it? And the fruit of that is born and evidenced um, to those around you, I think, and that that's that that's entirely biblical, but. Um, yeah, I just I just wonder to 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 what extent, um, as I've spoken with other leaders uh, and other people on this podcast, you know, is there a necessity and need which I I I put my cards on the table? I believe for us as the church to also be repenting and humbling ourselves before God, given the state of the country, but also the fact that we've we've bought into. Uh, gluttony and and various other things. What what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, um, I would simply say this. I would say that uh, one of the things about the COVID thing that has discouraged me a lot is this should have driven the church to its knees, I think this is a tiny virus which has destroyed the economies of the world, brought down, you know, kings and princes, if you like. Um, and, you know, we think we're in control. We've, and, and we've just been made fully aware that we are not. Uh, and I hear political leaders saying, we are great, whatever country, oh, Australia is great, America is great, the UK is great, Scotland is great. And we will conquer this. And I'm thinking, where's the humility? And, but I just find the church so often reflecting that attitude and reflecting the society rather than not just calling the society to repentance, but the church. I think we as a church need to repent. And I think most of all for myself, I would say I need to repent. Um, Sometimes I'm overwhelmed with that consciousness of that. And the only thing that stops me being driven into despair with all of those things is I'm also deeply conscious of the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus. But I mean, I'm just, without that, we are so stuffed, but I don't think we think we're stuffed. And because we're not aware of that, we don't appreciate the love and mercy of Jesus as much as we should. We Mm -hmm. kind of have the attitude, well, Jesus is a loveless course, because I'm lovable. Mm. or you know jesus will fix this because of course everything should be fixed and god would never allow anything bad to happen i just heard a horrific story yesterday from somebody a nurse who was describing how somebody had died and it was in horrific circumstances and in loneliness and pain and everything else and i it just made me feel sick to think that such things go on in the world but they do you know we're really wound up because I think in the UK, what is it, 40,000 people have died with COVID or some of COVID, but with COVID anyway. Um, but 750,000 people die in the UK every year. Mm. You know, and I'm not saying that that negates the seriousness of the COVID situation. What I'm saying is it sets it in a perspective which none of us really want to accept, that we are all dying. When we hear about um you know, if we take this action, so many lives will be saved and so many deaths prevented. I'm saying, no, 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 no. Deaths won't be prevented. They'll be delayed. Mm. We never prevent death except through the good news of Christ. That's how I would put it. Yeah. So why is
0: it, do you think, that as Christians, let's just be up front, we can be as delusional about suffering and death Uh, regarding the reality of that? I mean, you know, obviously 10 out of 10 of us will die, but
1: what's going on in terms of us not facing into that? Um, I think it's part of what was said in Hebrews, where Jesus came to free all those who all their lives are held in slavery by their fear of death. And I think in general, people do have a fear. So what we do with our fears is we bury them. That's one thing. I think perhaps even more significantly is far more than we realize the church has bought into the attitudes of the culture in many, many ways. So we were talking about gluttony or we were talking about other things. And much of that is a reflection of buying into the attitudes of the culture. And I don't think we understand our culture, I don't think we understand ourselves, and I don't think we understand our Bibles. And I find, as I go back to the Bible, and I mentioned I was reading the Puritans, what struck me about the Puritans was how in touch they were with the society around them, how in touch they were with the scriptures, but for me, phenomenally, how in touch they were with the human heart. And they knew how to apply the scriptures to the hearts of the people who lived in the context of a culture that they understood. And I think we are missing that. I think we are atomized. Um, we have churches that compete with one another. We've lost sight of some basic Christian doctrines, such as the doctrine of sin. Sin is what other people do, not what we do. Uh, and I think we've lost sight of many other things as well.
0: Yeah, that's, that's interesting. So, and I think that relates, doesn't it, to, I suppose, repentance is about, you know, acknowledging before God, you know, search my heart and where we stand and where where we are. And and, and I think you're right. You know, there can be the sense in which we sort of, uh, you know, sanctimoniously sort of act as if we're sort of, well, that doesn't affect us. Um, or we have a sort of glib view of, you know, living life in a sort of, Disneyfication of life and then we're just going to carry that on in in heaven, whatever that is. Um, So I think we need need that sort of sure understanding, you're right, of our sin, we need that sure understanding of of humbling ourselves at this time but also that um, assurance of the fact that God will make all things new, and that actually, for me, what what's really helpful in this, in terms of rightfully fearing God, and seeing that that He is the one above all things, but He will make all things new. And I think when we lose that perspective, we just end up fearing other things, and COVID being one of them. But I think it's amplified um, those uh, disparities, hasn't it, in, to some extent.
1: Yes. uh, Yeah, I think it has. And I think that the interesting thing, there's a lack of realism. So I was a a minister up in a highland village called Brora. And I remember one time this really hitting me home at the time of a funeral. Um, Somebody had died and I went to visit the widow and the custom was at that time, and maybe still is, that uh, the body would be in the house and uh, people would come in and pay their respects there would be endless cups of tea. People would bring, you know, the the widow would usually end up with thousands of at least tea bags or something. Um, And uh, I remember sitting, talking to this widow one time and the television was off, people were coming in and out. And she looked at me and she said, the the funeral was really a cutoff point. And by the way, that's one of the cruel things about not letting people go to funerals at at this Mm. time. Um, but the, the funeral really was a cut-off point, and also perhaps even a new beginning for some people. But she said to me, this is so unreal. This is so unreal. I can't wait for things to get back to reality. And as genuine as I could, I said to her, actually, this is reality. This mm. is the ultimate reality. And when you go back to switching on your television and watching Coronation Street and dealing with the trivia of day-to-day life, much of that is what is unreal. This is reality. And I think we don't want to face up to that. And for many years, even as a Christian, I didn't want to face up to it. I mean, that changed for me, but it took a um, pretty dramatic event for it to change. Mm.
0: Yeah. And so just sort of closing up then, any sort of um, closing thoughts about where we might be going? I know it's quite hard when we're in the middle of this, but what what changes might we see? Um, can we sort of see in the next sort of year or two, or is it just too early to say that kind of thing?
1: I think it's probably too early. Um, I think that uh, I would... um, I think that this has exposed a lot of things in society. I think it has exposed a lot of things in the church. I think that you will find that... um, some churches will grow and thrive out of this. Those that have good biblical theology, a good sense of community and, and a grasp of the culture and particularly they're going to use technology and things like that. I think those of us who think the online church is the future are in big, big trouble because the church is incarnational mm-hmm. and we need the holy kiss. We need the bread. We need the wine. We need the company. We need, you know, the manly handshake or whatever it is, but we need to be there. Um, and uh, I, I do wonder if an awful lot of churches are going to get a shock that a lot of their people, particularly those who are more nominal will mm. think, yeah, I don't need to bother with this. You know, mm. kind of the Lord's day is gone. The idea of worship gathered public worship, that's pretty well gone. You can do everything online. You can listen to your favorite teacher, put on your favorite Christian band on Spotify or whatever. So mm. I think there's going to be difficulties with that. Um, my big concern of what have risen, has risen at the moment, especially in the UK, is how much the church has compromised with the secular culture and largely just reflects it. So, mm-hmm. if you can forgive me giving just a couple of examples. Um, one is the uh, Church of England bishops, who it seems virtually unanimously have had a real go and called the government to repent. For Dominic Cummings, and whilst i 'm all in favor of calling governments to repent, it seemed an interesting subject for them to choose, bearing in mind that this very same government has just passed imposed an abortion law upon Northern Ireland that is going to kill hundreds of thousands eventually of our fellow human beings, and not a word and that 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 bothers me at that level. But at another level, what bothers me is churches, evangelical churches as well, who withdraw from the culture, either into a kind of pietistic thing mm. or um, or sometimes actually withdraw from the gospel and put everything into vir- in virtual common. I'm calling it social action. Um, mm-hmm. I've just been writing a piece about my son doing a, a church plant in Charleston in Dundee. And what I love about what he does is he doesn't patronize people. he he preaches the word to them as much as he would preach it to a middle-class congregation. And that's what the poor need. They don't need to be patronized. They don't need charity. Of course we share what we've got and that's what Christians should do, but there's far too many Christians just buy into the narratives of the culture and we need to get back to the word. We need to get back. I think we need to get back to loving Christ with all our heart, soul, and mind. Mm. Um, And I fear, I hope that this will shake us up to do that my fear at the moment is that that is not happening, and I pray and hope it will, because otherwise I believe that if God is to revive us, He will send us something even worse yeah
0: yeah and i I, I think there is about something about being attentive to what is going on isn 't it so we 're sort of reading yeah. what it says in the word and we 're reading what 's happening in culture and and I agree with you my, my concern is that we to some degree there's a sort of mantra that says you know can't wait till it gets back to being normal again you know and and it's not going to be like that and i think that if we are thinking people praying people attentive to what god is saying that we need to be looking at the signs and actually seeing what he's saying and the way that that works for me is i i need to stop my busyness at points and get on my knees or go out for a walk and, and listen to god and And um, not that I I do that well all the time, but um, it's just an awareness that we have to be attentive to God um, and be aware of what's going on in the culture. Um, Yeah. And and I think, I actually think, I agree with you. I think there are concerns, but I also think there's great opportunities for us. Oh, there
1: are fabulous opportunities. Sorry, let me just say this. There are fabulous opportunities. (laughs) My question is whether we will take them
0: yeah no you're absolutely right yeah you're absolutely right and i think i think what we've spoken about just as we move towards a close now that in a classic kind of way i have said that once i'll say it twice i might even say it a third yeah. time um but um the yeah we 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 do need to listen but you're right we need to to respond to those opportunities and yeah. um my concern joined with yours is that we don't we don't respond to those opportunities and linked in with what we've been talking about is that we don't just respond uh, return to sort of gluttonous ways putting it bluntly that we don't just go back to um, consuming and uh, massaging our own egos that actually we see this as an opportunity for change and um, Deep down, I think you know, we need it. We need a deep down change that, um, that we will demonstrate the goodness of the gospel and get yeah. that out. So, it's been great uh, for you to join me. Thanks so much, um, uh, for joining me for breakfast, even though for you it's uh, nearly dinner uh, or okay. supper, or whatever people call it in their part of the world. Um, So just before you go, just to let uh, listeners know that you can uh, listen to this on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. If you want to ask any questions, you've got any comments about what David said, then you can go to Little Breakfast uh, Facebook page or on Twitter, find us on Twitter as well. And uh, we'd love to interact with you there. Thanks so much for joining us, David. Really appreciate your time uh, this morning or for you this evening.
1: (laughs) It was a joy, thank you. Thank you so much.